Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. Today on JOSPT Insights, it's a mini running masterclass with the excellent Dr. Rich Willey from the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Science at the University of Montana. Join us for all that you need to know to help set the athlete up for success when returning to running after ACL reconstruction. Rich shares four guiding principles for planning a high quality return to run program and his tips for the ways that you can easily monitor progress. Rich, welcome to JOSPT Insights. Thanks, Claire. I'm excited to be here. I'm really glad you could join the podcast today, Rich, because we're going to chat about what I think is a a very important but perhaps a bit neglected area of rehabilitation when we're talking about ACL reconstruction. And I think it gets a bit overshadowed when when we talk about return to sport and return to sport testing, but we don't talk so much about return to running. And yet I think return to running is a pretty key milestone for athletes after an ACL reconstruction. So can you share a little bit about why you think return to running is important? and why it's important to pay attention to return to running and to get it right. And then perhaps what you, what you, the clinician, what our listeners need to do to set the athlete up for success. Clinicians and researchers probably haven't spent a lot of time on it. I know several groups are starting to look at this. And running is a pretty important activity. It's a, it's a fundamental movement skill that is just as fundamental to returning to sport as being able to cut and, and jump and, and, and pivot. And we, we tend to spend a lot of time in that return to sport process working on those skills, but um, most athletes are just handed a return to run program and they're told to go do it on their own. And there's not a lot of guidance given and there's not a lot of monitoring on, on how that athlete is progressing with that. So I think we can probably do a much better job that hopefully will lead to some, some better outcomes for our, for our patients. The, the other reason why I think like spending some time on this can be really important is that, you know, a lot of athletes, as we know, of course, right after surgery, you know, 95% are planning to go back to their sport of choice. But we know that later on down the road, a lot of a lot of individuals don't. And so they might need some other activity to return to if they're not planning on going back to, you know, sports that involve cutting, pivoting, and, and jumping. And, and recreational running is a great way to maintain your fitness. And so I think we need to make sure that we're setting our athletes up for success, not just for their that initial return to run process, but also for later on in life. Now, you've mentioned to me that you've got three keys to success for return to running. Can you share what those three keys are? Yeah, sure. I, absolutely. Well, I, I think that, you know, I think that one of the, one of the most important things, and I'm going to kind of encourage listeners to go back and listen to some of the really great podcasts that have been on here before me. And I think Eric Mara's two-part podcast is an excellent one. So I, I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to those. And then Hega Grindham's uh, podcast was also excellent. You know, running involves a lot of quadricep strength and a lot of quadricep control. And so I think first and foremost, I think we need to make sure that we're preparing our athletes for success. And so we need to optimize quadricep strength prior to returning to run. And it certainly seems like uh, when you look back at some of the papers that have looked at this is, you know, how well are people going to go back to return to running and can we predict, you know, running biomechanics, it seems like, you know, achieving at least a uh, 70% limb symmetry index with the, for the quad index seems to be a really a, a, a critical milestone prior to returning to run. 
And whether that be using something like the DAPRI, which is a, a system that, that we use, which is based on our, around the six repetition max, or something else along those lines, you know, I think that we as clinicians need to have some sort of program that we're, we're relying on to help guide our progressions for our athletes to return their quadricep strength back to where, where it should be. Part of that too is, is also testing periodically so that they can have a nice target. So that for me, I think that would be number one. I think number two would be running is, is not fast walking. Our leg and our knee and our, our, our ankle and, and uh, hip uh, structures are actually these, these big springs and we need to train them for that too. And so I think prior, you know, prior to running, there should, there should be some you know, period of plyometrics that are setting the athlete up for success when it comes to doing that energy storage and release that we typically think about when we're thinking about running and certainly when we get to more higher level activities such as sprinting. So doing some, some plyometrics for a couple of weeks prior to that return to run process, I think is, is, is super important as well. Point number three, I think that being progressive and objective about that return to run process is, is also really important. I think that it is important to have a schedule, but also know when to make some modifications on that schedule, learning how to kind of monitor your athlete's progress and if they're, see if they're tolerating those loads well, deciding if you're okay to go ahead and move on to the next step, or perhaps kind of take a step back and, and take it easy for a second so that that athlete's knee can catch up with where you're putting them from a load standpoint. Let me just recap those, Rich. So we've got quad strength, plyometrics training, and then have a plan and a schedule and a structure that you monitor as you go through the progression. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Now let's talk for a moment about timing. Is return to run a time criterion? Because I think a lot of folks still use the kind of old heuristic of 12 weeks post-op as the time when you start running. What guidelines would you suggest folks think about using? When is the right time, quote unquote, right time to start running after an ACL reconstruction? Yeah. I mean, I think that the 12 weeks is what I encounter the most. And, and I think that when you look at uh, a really nice scoping review that you're a co-author on with Alexander Rambeau in uh, British Journal of Sports Medicine from 2018, that was one of the key findings is that overwhelmingly programs use 12 post-op weeks as the return to run criteria. But there are some other criteria that we can add in there that can make it uh, a much more refined process. And you know, I think like, for instance, full extension range of motion obviously is really critical. I think that, you know, knee flexion range of motion should be pretty much at least within 5% of the opposite limb. Minimum to absent pain with repetitive single leg hopping. Again, because running is basically a hopping activity. So you should have, you should be pretty pain-free when you're, when you're just doing stationary hopping. That's where the plyometric component comes in. So I think like building, you know, you should start thinking about getting this athlete back to that return to run you know, early on during rehab. And so you should start thinking about programming in some plyometrics, you know, two to four weeks before you start getting your athlete uh, into this return to run program. So that when it is time to do the hop test uh, or something, or just stationary hopping to see if they do have pain, it should be, it should be pretty pain-free and something that they're well accustomed to. So yeah, they should have minimum to absent pain. Um, they should be able to flex the knee when they are hopping too. They should be accepting low. They shouldn't have a really stiff knee, um, which a lot of athletes will try to do. They'll try to add like a, some sort of a hip strategy to offload the knee. You know, after doing some plyometrics and some other kind of higher load activities, it should have absent to trace fusion on the, on the swipe test. So I think that's really important. And that's going to be a really important test for us to do almost on a daily basis when we're progressing our athletes to make sure that they're tolerating the progressions that we're doing with our return to run program. 
quarter-step LSI should be 70% or, or, or greater. And I think it's also worthwhile to be testing the hamstrings. And hop tests, I think, you know, I think hop testing our athletes, those should be at least 70% from an LSI standpoint. I think overall, I think the, the one of the big trends you're starting to see in the literature is that this, this rush to return to play and return to sport, it seems like we need to kind of slow it down a little bit. And so and I, I think that this return to run is probably also rushed a little bit as well, too. I, I don't know if 12 weeks is exactly adequate to hit all those criteria that we just that we just hit on. And so I think like really focusing in on, you know, getting good quadricep strength and good weight acceptance through that, that knee is really important before we start beginning this return to run program. We typically think that when an athlete goes back to running, that their biomechanics are just going to sort themselves out. That once they start running and sure, they might have a limp a little bit, but, you know, after they do that for a while, they'll kind of figure it out. But, but we're actually not seeing that. And so we did a systematic review that we published in the Journal of Sports Medicine uh, last year where we found that once athletes start running and then you look at them six, nine months, 12 months later down the road, they, they really don't seem to change their biomechanics. So the biomechanics you see on day one are pretty much going to be the biomechanics that they're going to have from a long-term standpoint too. And a really nice paper was just public in, uh, published in American Journal of Sports Medicine from Brian Heiderscheidt's group that, that longitudinally followed these athletes from before their ACL injury to three months, six months, and then 12 months after the injury. And they also found the same thing. So maybe we should make the three keys of success for return to running into four keys and add take your time <laughs> and, and biomechanics to the, the strength plyometrics and have a plan and a schedule. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a good addition. We've talked already, I think, about return to run as a progression as opposed to a sort of, sort of yes, no. Let's talk about how you build up that progression and, and how you start to build that return to running program, Rich. So where do you start? I think one of the things that where I would start, I would even start before the, the running part and really focus on walking. And one of the things that we see with people who have had an ACL reconstruction is that overall their activity levels tend to really decline in the first three to six months. The average return to run program is you know, typically a walk-run you know, cycle that goes on for about 30 minutes. And that athlete is going to accumulate about five to 6,000 foot strikes during those, those 30 minutes. And when, when you look at some of the, uh, some of the step data or activity data, that's just monitoring people who have had an ACL reconstruction, these athletes are only getting about 5,000 steps a day. And so if we suddenly put them into this return to run program, where you're, you're having them, you know, take on another 5,000 footsteps per day, you're basically doubling the load on this athlete in a single day. So before they, before you do this return to run program, an, an easy thing to do is just have that athlete use some sort of step counter. Most smartphones will count your steps or most smartwatches do the same thing as well and have them build up to the, to where they're getting about 7,500 foot strikes per day. And I think even better than that, if you can get them on the treadmill walking and building up to about 30 minutes of walking three times per week for at least two weeks before you start the return to this return to run program, I think you're going to have much better success with your athletes as well. And it's not going to be such a, such a large shock to the system when they suddenly start doing this, you know, this run walk uh, program. Then after that, that first week is, is really should be very easy. You know, it should just be about a minute of walking and, you know, two to three minutes of, I'm sorry, a minute of running and two to three minutes of walking and doing that for maybe seven cycles or something like that, or for, for a total of 30 minutes. There are lots of return to run programs that are out there. I would recommend using probably a slower one 
for athletes, particularly ones who are, have had some trouble with some knee extensor pain. The other part too, that I think is really important is where we decide to do this return to run program. I really like having athletes do it on a treadmill. And, and the reason for that is that if the athlete starts to get into some trouble or an experience and increase in symptoms, they can just step off the treadmill and go finish their workout doing some cross training instead of finding themselves, you know, I don't know, half a mile, two miles from home and having to figure out a way to get, to get back. So, yeah, so I think start off slow and make sure that it, these aren't big changes in the overall workload for the athlete and um, make it something that if they do get into some trouble with an, ex- with, an, with an increase in symptoms, that they can stop the workout immediately. Rich, what do you do face-to-face in the clinic versus what do you set up as a home program for the athlete? Yeah, one of the things that I'll do is I'll, I'll start them on, on a treadmill and, and teach them how to, you know, get them set up with an app that will do that, that walk run cycle. Uh, and I think that's really important because, you know, athletes, they're all very anxious to get back to doing their sport or getting back to their activity. And so you might have your, have, you know, experience like a really good day as an athlete. And you're like, gosh, you know, I'm, this guy only has me, you know, running for a minute or two minutes. And I, I really think I'm feeling pretty good today. So I'm going to go ahead and go for five minutes. And so I think being really objective with it and sticking with the program, I think is really important. So, so we have everybody use a, uh, a very simple app that, you know, provides this walk around cycle. It's a nice app because they can listen to podcasts or music or what have you, and it's still playing in the background and, and it's not, not a What's big deal. What's the app that you use, Rich? Yeah, it's called Interval Timer. And, and it's, you, can get it, you can get it for iPhones and you can also get it for Android as well. So, and it's a free app. There are some, some ads in it, but uh, it's pretty easy to use. And it's one that I use um, pretty regularly just during my, my normal workouts. Um, there are a couple other ones that are out there as well. I know Garmin for their running watches, they have a built-in cycle as well that you can program. And so some, some running watches will, will allow you to do that as well. The other thing that I'll do too is, you know, I'll get the athlete running and I really want to be looking at their running biomechanics. And so we'll do a very quick running gait analysis. And, and for that, we use a high-speed camera. And if you don't have one, you, most uh, smartphones have a high-speed function. So I really would encourage you to do a video gate analysis. It's not hard to do. And you can typically pick up on a lot of asymmetries pretty easily. The main view that you're going to want to be looking at is a, is a sagittal view. So you can look at how much knee flexion uh, and knee extension the athlete's going into. The main uh, running biomechanic issues that we see with athletes after an ACL reconstruction when it comes to running is that they tend to land in more knee flexion. And then they tend not to go through as much knee motion. So they're not absorbing the same amount of energy in their injured limb as their uninjured limb. And so if, you, if you're wondering where all that energy is going, athletes are typically shifting it up proximally up to their, their um, hip extensors. So a lot of times you might see an athlete who's leaning forward just slightly so they can kick in some more of their hip extensors. It's a really important pattern to pick up on because one of the things that we found in our systematic review and, and Brian Heiderscheidt's group is finding as well is that that mechanic doesn't go away. If you see it on day one, it's going to be there six months later, it's going to be there a year later, and probably they're on, on forward. And is that something that you can easily cue the athlete and resolve? Rich, how would you, uh, how would you suggest folks start to approach that if they do see it? Yeah, it, it, it is a bit of a tricky mechanic to, you know, to, to try to adjust. The you know, first thing I think that's important is going back to making sure they have adequate quadricep strength, because one of the reasons why they're moving like this is because they might not have the adequate quadricep strength. And also the, those plyometrics are really important too. So you're encouraging the athlete to absorb a lot of energy during their plyometric activities. 
And hopefully that'll kind of ease this transition into running. But if they're, if they're still having that issue, there are a couple of different things you can do. And these might seem kind of, kind of counterintuitive. And, and that one of those is you might encourage that athlete to have not a forefoot strike, but actually a heel strike. And so, you know, kind of historically, you, you'll, you'll hear a lot of people try to cue people to go into a forefoot strike, but we actually want to do the opposite for this person because we want to try to encourage more loading through the knee, which might seem counterintuitive. But this, when we're looking at long-term function with athletes, the athletes who have a greater knee extensor moment tend to do better and tend to have a higher quality of life during running and also during, during walking. So we want to encourage loading of those, of our, our quadriceps and our knee extensors. So more of a heel strike. If you're lucky enough to have a treadmill that has a little bit of a downhill function. So some treadmills will have a, the ability to go into somewhat of a, you know, two to 3% decline. And you can also have some, that athlete do some, uh, some, some downhill running. One of the things that we find that doesn't help it is if you cue cadence. So we've, we've, we've looked at this, uh, John Wilson is a colleague of mine. We, we had athletes run with a metronome and, uh, and also with a Garmin that was giving them real-time feedback on their running cadence. And we found that it, it just had them have their, just increase their cadence that, that that limb asymmetry didn't really change when it came to their, their overall knee extensor moment. The other way to do it from a wearable uh, device is that Garmin, and I don't have any sort of relationship with Garmin, it's just the devices that we end up using in our clinic a lot. They have a, they have a heart rate monitor strap that has an accelerometer built into it, and it will measure how long you've got your right foot on the ground versus your left foot. And it can give you this asymmetry kind of index and you can get real-time feedback on that. And so you can, you can use that to cue your athlete to kind of, kind of, you know, put more load and be, you know, and, and try to equalize their, their stance time between their right leg and their, their left leg. So I think, I think those are kind of the main ways to do it. I think other things that you'll see some, some people recommending uh, in my experience don't seem to work very well. And one of those would be some wearable devices that give, use an accelerometer that give like real-time feedback on shock or, or some sort of impact metric. Those don't seem to make much difference because we know, for instance, that the ground reaction forces between the right leg and the left leg or the injured leg and the uninjured leg don't seem to be very different at all during running. Okay. So that's what you're doing in the clinic. What about for the home program? What, what sort of things are you asking the athlete to do? Or is the athlete doing anything at home or is all of your running progression happening, happening face-to-face? Yeah, we, we have our athletes doing it on their own. And so this is, you know, for certainly from a reimbursement standpoint, we want the athlete to be preserving as many visits as possible. We will typically set them up on a, on a self-guided sort of self-guided program, if you will, they need to check in with us regularly if they're having some issues, but we also teach them how to check their effusion. I think it's an important skill for patients to have so they can monitor that. A lot of times, you know, athletes kind of know what it's going to be. Their, their, their knee kind of feels a little boggy when they're getting a little bit extra joint effusion, but we go ahead and teach them how to do that. We teach them how to, um, how to determine if it's okay for them, for them to move on. So once they start getting more than trace effusion, then that's a great time for them to just, you know, take an extra day of cross training and, and also take a day off, take a step back and their overall progression. We do set them up with the schedule. It's a pretty conservative schedule, but we, the athletes are under kind of some, some strict instructions not to, not to skip steps because that's where we find that athletes get themselves in a lot of trouble. They, you know, they, they find themselves being a little bit eager to get back to things. And then before you know it, they end up with a, with a knee that's talking back to them and not, not feeling very good. The other one we, that we talk to them about too is uh, not to get so much worried about pain at the start of a run, 
But if that pain goes away when they, as they get warmed up, then it's okay for them to continue that day. But if you see pain that, that increases throughout the run or comes back, then that's a, that's a good sign that that athlete is probably overcooking it and probably needs to, to take a day off and end that workout and finish doing some cross training, add an extra day of cross training before they do their next run, and then also take a step back in the progression. The other one that we spend a lot of time talking to athletes about is, and probably the most important one is for them to monitor their symptoms the day after, very similar to we, what we would do for someone who has some sort of a tendinopathy. And so if you have an increase in symptoms the next morning after your run, that's a really good sign that you've also overcooked it and you, you need to take a step back and just slow things down a little bit. So that's the, what's telling you to slow down. What about the progressions, Rich? How do you, how do you know when to progress this program and, and how are you measuring and monitoring? We've designed our return to run program looking at total number of foot strikes. And so we used to do it based off distance way back when I first started doing return to running. And then we changed it from distance uh, to time. And now we've taken a look at all of our runners and basically looking at some averages on, on number of foot strikes they take for a minute versus from walking versus running. We've, we've designed our, our program in that way to make sure that it's a nice gradual, gradual increase. The first week is pretty slow. And the reason for that is that this is a pretty big shock to the system. So when you go from walking to running, and again, this athlete hasn't run in you know three to four, maybe even five months, what you're seeing is you're seeing that about a four and a half times increase in patellofemoral joint and tibiofemoral joint loads. And so you kind of have to respect that and you need to give the athlete's knee a time to catch up to that. So that first week is pretty slow and we're talking about a minute of running for two minutes of walking. And we're typically doing just seven cycles of that with a nice five minute warm up of walking and a five minute cool down of walking. And then after we have two different programs, uh, we have a, a kind of accelerated one, which will get athletes back to running for 30 minutes straight uh, after uh, four weeks. Then we have a slower program that will get athletes back to 30 minutes of running after six weeks. And depending on that athlete's goals, we'll plug them into either one of those. We may need to have an athlete who's on the faster program, maybe slow things down and go into that more conservative one. And then the other thing too, is it also depends on where we want this athlete to end up. So if we have an athlete who's going to get back to an, uh, a sport that does involve a lot of running, uh, soccer being you know, a perfect example of that, or even if they're just going back to running, we, we do want to get them up to where they are running for 30 minutes continuously. But if you, have, if you have an athlete who is looking to get back to more of a very start-stop type activity like football or something like that, I think getting that athlete up to only about 15 minutes of running continuously is going to be adequate. And then making that transition into a return to sprinting program, I think is going to be a good idea at that point, um, because that's going to really, uh, it's going to appeal to the athlete a lot better. And it's also going to be mimicking the, the sport type loads that this athlete needs to be getting themselves ready to go back to when they are for that eventual return to sport. Yeah. And I think that's where the return to run progression and return to sport progression kind of overlay and mesh with each other and where we talk about return to sport as starting from the, the injury or the reconstruction and sort of planning that whole process rather than saying, okay, we do return to running for the first X number of weeks and then we focus on return to sport. It's much more about looking at what are the overall demands of this sport, what does the athlete need to do, how are we going to make it interesting and exciting and relevant for the athlete and achieve all of the athlete's goals. And we haven't even talked about 
things like cardiovascular fitness and all of the other aspects of the sport that are related to to return to running. We're much more focused today on the the health of the knee and paying attention to the symptoms from the knee as as guides for progressing or not progressing. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that's a that's a really good point, and and one of the ones that we try to emphasize to our athletes, and this be whether they're returning from a stress fracture or from ACL reconstruction or, or what have you. And that's the, the return to run process is not for cardiovascular conditioning. It is truly a loading activity. It's a knee loading activity. And in, in this case, for the athlete with a bone stress injury, it's a, it's a bone loading activity. And so we're, we're not using their cardio, their progression and their cardiovascular fitness is guiding this. We're, uh, and we're not trying to get them back to the point where they're actually getting a cardiovascular workout during their return to run program. That's what cross training is for. And so we really want to have the athlete kind of focused in on the knee and, and understand that, uh, hey, if they want to, if they want to or need to be working on their cardiovascular fitness, that the way to do that is doing some appropriate cross training outside of this activity. Rich, this is an absolute running masterclass. Thanks for sharing it with the JOSBT Insights audience. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks, Claire. It's been, it's been wonderful to be here. I appreciate it very much. I've, I've enjoyed it. And yeah, it's a great topic. I think that I think you'll be seeing a lot of work coming out in the next couple of years on this, on this, in this area, because I think that we're all starting to realize that, that it is an area that we haven't really probably paid enough attention to. And that, you know, I think that we can make this, this return to run process a lot smoother for our athletes and we can be a lot more objective about how we're doing it as well. Absolutely. That's something I can get behind. Thanks so much, Rich. Thank you. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.